Hi, welcome back. This is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM, and I'm your host, Alexis Brawley-James, and my co-host, Amber Boyston. In celebration of International Women's Day, we are going to be having a conversation about the intersectionality between race and gender, um, and a little about, about colorism in the current social justice movement. My name is Alexis Brawley-James, and I identify as she, her. And I'm the founder CEO of Construct the Present, and we're a diversity, equity, inclusion consulting company that focuses on leadership activation and culture change. And we do that through healing communities um, and really engaging in conversation. I'm going to turn it over to my co-host to introduce herself. I'm Amber Boytston, everybody, she, they pronouns. My nonprofit, Spirited Justice, brings justice, abolition, equity, and mindfulness trainings and facilitations to the communities in Portland and also around the world. I believe in all things Black liberation and um, Indigenous sovereignty and land back and the transformative work that we all have capacity to do within ourselves, which is healing not only for um, us as individuals, but also for our families, our communities, and on an epigenetic level. And I'm really excited to talk with you, Alexis, today about our social justice movement, um, about you know BLM, self-care, and how um, we can work together as a community to continue to create change. I'm also excited about that. I know we, um, in our prep call, we talked about some big ideas, and so I'm looking forward to how we kind of break those down a little bit and get into it. Yeah, I do want to make sure that when we are talking about intersectionality, that our listeners have a framework for what that is, and really also uh, paying homage to Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined that term in 1989. And so when we talk about intersectionality, we're really focusing on the overlapping systems of oppression and access and privilege, and that can be race, class, gender, politics, um, individual characteristics, and the lens in which we as individuals are experiencing life. Totally. We would not have that word without Kimberly Crenshaw. And I think oftentimes her work goes invisible as the foundation for it. Absolutely. I would say that the more that I've been teasing apart what intersectionality around race and gender looks like, I've come into what feels like a really common um, uh, barrier within our American system, which is, you know, we've primarily and largely as a foundation that is anti-Black and white supremacist. And so what I've been noticing, I'm really curious what you think, Alexis, is that when we are using intersectionality to hold tough conversations, that there are often groups of people that are experiencing many layers of access within layers of oppression who use that as a way to uh, position themselves and, mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes absolve themselves of having challenging conversations around race and justice and equity. 
Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think recently, you know, there's this idea that <clears throat> we're all simultaneously being oppressed and privileged. However, it feels to me the conversation about race is oftentimes the last conversation to be had. And it's easy for folks who are part of the dominant race to pre provide an off ramp from the conversation and say, oh, I don't I don't think we should just be talking about race. I think we should take this from an intersectional lens. And while I always wanna be having conversations about the multifacetedness of oppression and privilege, it feels to me as if race is always the last conversation to be had or never gets had. Instead, we wanna talk about um, everything else, whether it's sexual identity, gender, ableism, and it isn't in tandem. And intersectionality actually requires that we talk about those in tandem, intersectionally, not replacing one for the other. Absolutely. And that we're taking that awareness into action, right? And that action is rooted in changing and often abolishing systems that are really oppressing large groups of people. And, and when we say large groups of people, it's really named that it's our most richly melanated community members, Black community, that are targeted mm -hmm. consistently. Exactly. I agree. And I think the intersectional nature, you know, because we were talking about how black women oftentimes are the leaders of these movements and the the <clears throat> bearing a lot of the brunt or carrying a majority of the load to move these conversations forward. And so when intersectionality is asking us to then take off our race, it's counterproductive to the movement. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Absolutely, 100%. It's, it's been fascinating within our Black Lives Matter movement and most recently within this last year of the Black Lives Matter movement and our social justice movement to experience all of the layers and, and complexities in which we're having these conversations and really who's able to sit in those places of discomfort and look within themselves and see where they're holding up systems of oppression because it reminds to everyone that that anti-blackness and white supremacy it is the ocean in which we're all swimming and it touches us all and so seeing where in which ourselves we are upholding those systems mm -hmm. i totally agree i'm trying to think of a concrete example that i've experienced recently <clears throat> i think um a really tangible way that this shows up or the oppression within my work is Oftentimes I'm leading a meeting or facilitating a meeting, but it's also the expectation that I'm taking notes and monitoring the schedule. And I think women, we are asked to do a lot of housekeeping for mm -hmm. movements and for processes without any acknowledgement that that's been a gendered tool. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it is this expectation, this unspoken expectation that Black women, Black femmes are going to be able to continue to handle whatever is put on top of them and asked of them. And that what we see is really that as Black women, we rise to the occasion, right? That we are both birthing this world and holding our community and, and the healers and the creators and the educators um, and that and and the using of us within that like seeing our magic and using that is is really another another one of the oppressors tools mm -hmm. yeah um, only when it's convenient for us like there's this idea that is foundational to social justice work um, called 
interest convergence, which comes from, oh gosh, it'll come to me. But the idea that people in power are only willing to listen to marginalized groups when it benefits them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that what I'm noticing is that as Black people, we are sitting in a layer of oppression and we are consistently rising above it. And so we have this ability to navigate within many layers of uh, complexities um, and and trauma and pain and still show up and make sure that uh, for large groups of people that our needs are met. Um, and, and I'm really looking forward to having it changed for us as people, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this really shift for us that that we move into places where we're able to uh, also receive a lot amount of healing mm-hmm. because we are the people that just continue to do the work. Yeah, and <clears throat> and just a reminder for everyone who's listening: this is Alexis Brawley James and Amber Boyston, and we're having a conversation about the intersectionality of gender and race within social justice movements. And as you're talking about healing, Amber, it just makes me really think about how important self care is, and oftentimes what self care is and what self care isn't. And I'm curious for you, when we talk about self care in racial or social justice, what comes up for you? Mm-hmm as an activist and an abolitionist doing justice and equity work every day, I really do feel steeped in um, an entrenched system. And so for me, it's been really a radical act of self-love to take moments uh, of stillness. I really have a meditation practice that has been transformative in my life, although this last year of Uh, the type of protesting that I've been doing and the type of abolition work has really taken a toll, what feels like on a cellular level. And so I've been trying to make sure that I'm getting enough water and that I'm that I'm practicing my breathing, knowing that uh, my breath connects to my brain and allows my brain um, to move out of a fight or flight mode into a space where I have more access to creativity and thinking. And so I would say that I have had many tools throughout my life that have helped me um, stay grounded and access my higher self. And recently it is just those two things that, that connection to breath and making sure that I'm staying hydrated, which is really helping me in the long haul. What about for you? Oh my gosh, it's like you're in my head. I remember <laughs> it was like um, six months into the pandemic and by that time I was hitting a wall and I was like, okay, I can only manage like a very low level of responsibility. So what are the things I'm gonna do? And I had this checklist. Did you drink water? Did you eat green leafy vegetables? Did you move your body? <laughs> like, And if those three things were met, it was a good day. Everything else could go terrible. <laughs> and as long as I, I had to set the bar and I think that has carried over, but also just this idea of rest as resistance because I think the nature of white supremacy and capitalism is constantly asking us to show evidence of our worth and how we measure that evidence is by constantly producing, moving, doing, acting. And I feel that pressure. And so I try to make space to just rest and do nothing. And sometimes doing nothing means just sitting with people and being in relationship because I'm definitely a 
communal person, but not having to produce evidence of my productivity. Absolutely. Yeah. Capitalism will kill us all. <laughs> and so <laughs> and make money off the death, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so for for us as black, brown, indigenous, and POC identifying people, it is vital to our very existence that we find ways to pause and realign. And often it feels as if that's the antithesis of what we should be doing. Because again, like you said, Alexis, we're asked to be everything, right? You're not only the leader of the meeting, you're the, you're the note taker, and you're also the provider of the tea. Um, it is uh, a ridiculous amount that is asked of us because for so long, our very existence has been relegated to this idea um, that we are here to continuously serve. Um, mm -hmm. We have created the very existence in which all people thrive. Yeah, I love when you say that we've kind of, we've birthed the human race. That oftentimes does not get acknowledged that one of the first um, humans as we know them is a black woman. And, what does that do then to the epigenetics and what's in our blood? So we're not only experiencing external pressure, but some of that internal maternal pressure as well. Absolutely, so much so. And to remember that when we talk about us facing, us being black women, black femmes facing levels of oppression, which are really reprehensible and, and um, believable to us and unbelievable to many, we should also recognize that there is a much larger amount of beauty and wisdom and joy and magic that we come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm always impressed with the ways that Black folks in general, but in particular Black women, the innovation that comes from being oppressed, we're constantly having to adapt and move. And some of those are the most exciting and most beautiful things. I think so, yes. I, and I, I really, really believe that the more that people, and especially white people, sit with that knowledge that you just shared, Alexis, that that the more that they'll see that every single thing that helps them live and thrive in which the way they do is rooted in, in something that a Black woman has created. Yeah. <laughs> I often find myself telling, giving advice to, you know, CEOs, executive directors, um, peers, like the best thing we can do right now is listen to the most melanated person in the room. And and I think like, I think about that because I'm light skinned, I'm not white passing. I think um, most people when they look at me are like, oh yeah, she's black. Um, <laughs> it, it's further helped when I wear my hair curly versus straight, but I find that there's a different conversation um, that needs to be had when I'm in the room. And I oftentimes struggle with whether to talk in first person about the most oppressed folks or talk in third person. Because while I acknowledge the oppression I experienced because of the color of my skin, I know that I was extremely privileged being socialized by white women and sort of given the playbook on how to navigate society. It doesn't always work, you know, the, the plays keep changing, but there's a different conversation that needs to be had. And, I think colorism is something we talk a lot about within the black community and I'm seeing it come up much more in the Latinx community. But I'm curious, like being out in the world and in the Black Lives Movement, 
Black Lives Matter movement, what um, what are you hearing about this conversation and what comes up? Yes, yeah, thank you. Hi, Alexis. And for those of you listening, uh, my name is Amber Boydston and you're listening to myself and Alexis Braley James talk about all of the intricacies and beauty and complexities around equity, race, gender, intersectionality, self-care, and now colorism. And within the BLM movement, I'd say what I really notice most, uh, I also am a light-skinned black woman. I have a white mother, an Ethiopian father. I receive access in many areas because to white community, I am often more digestible based on the level of anti-blackness and really colonialization over the past 500 plus years. Um, what I notice within our movement here, specifically in Portland, is that I get asked a lot to speak. Um, my other comrades who are lighter skinned as well get asked a lot to be at the forefront of any protest or march. And we, lighter skinned abolitionists and activists, are often having this conversation about how we can make sure that we are both holding really, really challenging conversations with the community, challenging conversations that our more richly melanated community would not be listened to for having, would not be, would not have opportunities to be believed um, or would be mocked. And so the responsibility of, of pushing on people's comfort and not being digestible and also simultaneously, like you said, right, pivoting and uh, centering the most melanated person and in, in the space. And so for me, what that looks like personally is really like Angela Davis has said is that uh, if you're benefiting from light skinned access or privilege and the system still exists, you're never really doing enough. And so I'm always, always working on staying rooted within myself and seeing where I'm showing up and, and upholding systems of oppression and also where I'm backing away from conversations that are uncomfortable and how I can just consistently be better. Oh, I'm, it's like so true because we were, we're talking about self-care, right? We're talking about rest. Um, and stillness is self-care while holding this dichotomous perspective of never being able to do enough because we benefit from privilege. And I think that is the thing that keeps me up at night. Like those are my 12 a.m., 1.30 a.m. thoughts is like, did I do enough today? Did I challenge enough? Did I leave the door open wide enough behind me? You know, am I, where am I perpetuating white supremacy and where am I interrupting it? And that's sort of like it's always a both and because just my existence, which I've had to come to terms with, just my existence perpetuates white supremacy because the fact that there are shades to this and certain people are given more access simply because of their proximity to whiteness is the is the perpetuating of white supremacy. And so how do I go into rooms and make people uncomfortable so that the next person that comes after me I won't have to experience the same sort of marginalization that I did. 
Absolutely. And I would just a little bit liken it to what as an equity trainer, I asked white community to do, right? When you see injustice happen for black community, you position yourself in front so mm-hmm. that you take the hit so that they don't, right? Like if there's a police situation, so on and so forth, it's it's an act of solidarity. And so for myself within the movement as a light-skinned black person, I often, I see myself in that role as like, it's it's absolutely taking the hit for, so that you open the door, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I was laughing with my sister this weekend because she lives down in um, Louisiana and they're talking about coming up to visit. And I'm like, oh, I can tell you, like, I am so many white people's only black friend. <laughs> you know? like, I, I'm that first, you know, and am I, is it because I'm digestible? Is it because I'm accessible? But how do I ensure that I'm holding them accountable as if I was 10 black friends? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. I am recognizing more and more as I age that what real abolition work looks like is being that change from within, right? It's first uh, killing that cop in your mind, killing that colonizer in your mind, and then remembering you know, where you're connected to humanity and linking yourself with the most marginalized groups of people so we can fast, in a much faster pace, get to black liberation. Mm -hmm. And so the work is really internal when I think about abolition work. And and when I, when I talk about being an abolitionist, uh, for many people I know, you know, they turn to thinking about the prison industrial complex, um, the medical industrial complex, and, and absolutely it's a total abolition of all of that. And really, I would say that it's an investing in our community, right? As we talk about the wisdom of black women and black femmes throughout all time, it's bringing that focus back into the community and harnessing the wisdom of the community. And so um, having these conversations, I would say as as groups of people together, colorism and, and how the social justice movement is happening as a whole is going to be what helps us uh, come together and really be that change. Because mm-hmm. right now there's, uh, it, it has to start from within and, uh, and, and we're on that line, right? We're on that line of like, who's who's performative and who's mm-hmm. really, really about this change. And that change means we're doing it from within every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the conversation that just barely started to come up um, in June was that this is personal work, that you can't start with a program or a training, but you really have to do some deep dive into your personal mental frameworks. Where is your understanding of race rooted? Where is your understanding of self rooted? How does entitlement come up for you? And I think that conversation is really easy to sideline for an activist or an action-based mindset. And a lot of the work to be abolitionist, to dismantle white supremacy will be invisible, but we'll know it when we see it. I love that. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, it will be. And it'll be totally transformative. And I have seen over the last year, and I'm curious for you, Alexis, just that both exist, right? That we have groups of people that are really, really dedicated to being the change. And 
when we look throughout time, those people are black women. We are we are consistently we have we have paved the way. The blueprints have been laid for our liberation. And I think that when I look at all of the struggles that we are continuously facing and the barriers, that's one piece of the light that continues to get a little brighter is to recognize that we aren't starting new, that we're starting really on the sacred backs of people who have laid the foundation for our success. Mm. Yeah, I think this just came up for me listening to you talk in this idea for black women, we don't get to necessarily check out of conversations because there's two simultaneous conversations happening around us, the one of race and the one of gender, where as other people, and this may be controversial or emotionally activating, but I do think that there's groups who can check out of the race conversation and opt into male privilege or check out of um, the male conversation and check into white privilege but as black women what what are we checking there's nowhere to check out there's nowhere to to get fatigued and so that requires that we're consistently adapting and finding new ways to enter into the conversation because i've definitely seen a fatigue happen over the last few months and i get it like we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're in the middle of a racial pandemic but people are kind of like well do we really have to keep talking about this like didn't we fix it or haven't we made enough progress for now can i just like can we wait like wait for what wait for more people to be murdered wait for more people to die because of lack of food or medical care like what is it that you're waiting for absolutely yes and black women are always the one to notice what has been disregarded and ignored but is also willful racism and so what many white people are saying is i just want to deal with what i can see and what we're saying is the complete fabric of the system mm -hmm. is anti-black Mm -hmm. And if we want to get to a place of liberation for all people, if we want our children to have an idea of what safety looks like, black, brown, indigenous, POC identifying children and white children to have a safe future, this begins with following black leadership in terms of looking at the ways in which we have both created powerful systems to support our communities and educate our communities and also create change. I love that call to action. And I know we have about three more minutes left. So I think it makes sense for us to, to let folks know where they can find us and how they can stay engaged. We probably could have talked about this for hours, but <laughs> we're winding down. Um, my name is Alexis Brawley James and I'm the founder CEO of Construct the Present. You can follow us on Instagram at CTP underscore consulting or email at support at constructthepresent.com. And that comes from Alice Walker, a quote um, where she's talking about, look at the present that you're constructing. It should look like the future that you dream of. And I'll turn it over to you, Amber. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I'm Amber, and you can find my nonprofit, Spirited underscore Justice, on IG. And you can find current and upcoming events that are happening there, as well as I post daily educational resources that are directly around abolition, lifestyle, uh, justice, equity, 
and mindfulness. Um, and I want to uh, share with everybody just a reminder that both Alexis and I talked about drinking water. Uh, water is, we are mostly water, and so make sure today that you find some time um, in, in your life to, to get some good water in you. And I am thankful for all of you joining in today and listening. We have a fabulous day planned. Um, make sure to continue to be that change that you want to see, which is really looking within yourself. Uh, you've been listening to race, gender, social justice, colorism, the intersectionality around all of that as part of Amplify Women on X-Ray FM, a celebration of International Women's Day. Myself, Amber Boydston, and Alexis Braley-James are so thankful to be here. Stay tuned.